Welcome to the Alex Katahakis Podcast, the show where I sit down and speak with inspirational, thought-provoking authors, therapists, and sex experts to discover ways to help you live a happy, healthy life. Today I'm talking with Dr. Stephanie Carnes, the president of the International Institute for Trauma and Addiction Professionals and a senior fellow for Meadows Behavioral Health Care. She's a licensed marriage family therapist, an AAMFT-approved supervisor, a clinical sexologist, certified sex addiction therapist and supervisor, specializing in therapy for couples and families struggling with sexual addiction. Dr. Carnes is the author of numerous publications, including her books, Mending a Shattered Heart, Facing Heartbreak, Facing Addiction, and most recently, her new book, Courageous Love, A Guide for Couples Conquering Betrayal. Join me today as I talk to Dr. Carnes about courageous love, how she came up with the idea for this beautiful workbook, and her passion for helping couples heal from betrayal trauma. Okay, so um, I was just thinking the other day about how long we've known each other, for starters, and my calculation is about 15 years, and I don't know if that's possible or right. <laughs> no, I think that is about right. Um, <laughs> Maybe even a little bit longer. Wow. You were living yeah. in San Diego. That's I was living in San recall. Diego. Yeah, it so. was back probably in like 2002 or 2003 that I think we met. So that is a lot longer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I was thinking about your first book, Mending a Shattered Heart, and how powerful that book was and how that was really one of the first books um, on the topic of you know partner uh, betrayal trauma and what people can expect and anticipate. Um, and now you have this beautiful new book called Courageous Love, A Couple's Guide to Conquering Betrayal. And I was wondering what precipitated the writing of this book. Yeah, so I felt like there was a hole in the literature because there's, so, there's a lot of books for addicts. There's now a, a great deal of books for partners, which is <laughs> wonderful. We finally have gotten there in the field, which has been an important move forward, but there really hasn't been anything for partners to read together and work through together. And sometimes I think when we do our, you know, individual treatment of both parties, we, there's not enough focus on the relationship. And so many of our clients are, you know, really want to save their relationship. Mm -hmm. And when the couple is supported, both parties end up doing better. And so I really wanted to write something that supported the couple. That's great. Yeah. And, um, I know that you have a passion for marriage family therapy and families in particular. And I wonder if you can say something about that background, uh, because that sort of creates a context, too, for why this came to you in this way. Yeah, yeah. Originally, my training is in marriage and family therapy, so I'm systemically trained. And um, I've done a lot of work in couples in couples therapy. And recently, I've been doing uh, my own training in emotion-focused couples therapy. Mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of Sue Johnson's. And uh, so that really got me focusing more on what exactly I'm doing with couples and how to integrate the sex addiction piece with some of the more comprehensive models of couples therapy, because they haven't always worked well together. That's right. Yeah. And not only that, as you were saying that, there's so few therapists that are really systemic thinkers. Yes. And so I love that you are, um, are, and that when you're thinking about the couple, you're thinking about um, the dynamics between the two people and their families and where they come from and how it all comes together. I mean, it's quite a complex um, uh, thing to figure out between people. 
Yeah. And I think too, when um, there are ways that even when we're doing individual therapy, we can be thinking systemically, yeah. you know, I, I try to teach uh, the CSATs that they can be uh, partner friendly addict therapists and addict friendly partner therapists That's nice, yeah. and being, you know, keeping the coupleship in mind when they're, you know, talking and encouraging them and supporting them in their relationships. So since this is a book for couples, what do you um, recommend is the best way to use this book? Yeah, so ideally, um, you know, one of the, the changes that has occurred in the field, you know, I'm sure you, you've noticed this over the years as, as we progressed, is that it used to be that we used to recommend that people do their own individual work mm-hmm. before trying to come together and do couples work. That used to be a real strong message 20 years ago. And, you know, I've really tried to move us away from that message and to really start thinking that we can start intervening with couples sooner. I mean, these people have to live together (laughs) and they're going home and staying in the same house and it's creating a lot of distress. And I think that we have to intervene sooner with couples Mm -hmm. and basically start off the, you know, the couple's crisis management right away. And so I'd like to see us get our couples into therapy earlier and really getting a couples therapist on board. And I'd like to see more CSATs trained in how to treat couples therapy and integrate that into the process. So Mm -hmm. that's my hope. Yeah, I think that's incredibly important. I mean, we, you know, always try to get the partner to come in with the addict on the initial assessment. Um, So we can start right off the bat with really just strategies more than couples therapy per se. But it is, um, I think, important that it be a much more holistic approach. And I think it's evolving in that way also. So, So with the couple then, what is the best way for the couple to use this book? Yeah, so I'd like them to read it together and to try and implement the strategies. There are definitely exercises throughout the book that they do together. And then there's exercises that they each work on independently. So would they each get their own workbook, ideally? Yeah, I mean, they could share a copy, I suppose, but it would probably be easier for them to have, you know, each have their own. Um, because there are sections of it, like, you know, we, we do talk about the disclosure process and the impact letter process and the emotional restitution process. And those are big pieces of work mm-hmm. that they need to do on an individual basis. Of course, it's a couple's intervention because it's shared right. and it's, you know, geared towards the couple, but they have to do that work alone. Yeah, because it's a workbook, I think I would recommend that everybody get their own copy. So you can write in the margins and highlight and and then share those together. Right, right. So can you say something about um, how betrayal trauma is different than other types of trauma and maybe what some of the common signs and symptoms are? Yeah, sure. So um, we are, as you know very well, but maybe some of the listeners aren't as familiar with, is we, we know, now know that the research really shows that partners have PTSD, about 70%. So not all partners, but yeah. about 70%. And a, about a similar percentage are having severe functional impairment. So, mm-hmm. you know, difficulty just getting through the day. So going to work is difficult, concentrating is difficult, you know, getting just, you know, daily living, um, it it can cause a lot of emotional instability, uh, um, feelings of low self-esteem, 
uh, hypervigilance around what, you know, the addict's behaviors and, you know, the future fear about the future and anxiety. Um, also some dissociative kind of symptoms. So a lot of the same symptoms that we would see from any PTSD survivor, um, they experience, but just relating to the betrayal. And so what I try to really educate in uh, people in the book is that, that these responses are normal and that we don't pathologize these because we see these kinds of responses in almost all partners. So we know it's a normal response. And so what I try to educate is, you know, just validate and normalize that these are normal and also really try to teach the unfaithful party that um, to be sensitive and respond in a manner that is empathetic and compassionate and sensitive to the PTSD because they can really help that uh, hurting person heal. Mm. They can help their symptoms go down. And what I see in coupleships a lot is that when, you know, the addict is doing well and they are doing their recovery behaviors and they're being transparent and open and following their treatment plan, you start to see the anxiety on the part of the partner go down. And some of their PTSD symptoms start to go down and they're less triggered around the behavior. When the addict is riding the fence of recovery and, or not providing that reassurance, yeah. then the partners are struggling. So it's really, you know, it, we can't look at, you know, this person's recovery as separate from this person's recovery. It's a system as we've been yeah. talking about. And so if they can respond in more effective manners to, towards their hurting partner, it, it helps both of them. Yeah, I think we think of PTSD as a wartime um, disorder. And even so, if you had a partner coming back from Afghanistan and they were traumatized, you wouldn't be yelling at them or ignoring them or thinking they were out of control. Or I had a client once who was hit by a car in a crosswalk. I mean, she wasn't killed, but she was certainly traumatized. It was at a low speed, like 10 miles an hour, but nonetheless, it hit her leg. And so you wouldn't yell at that person also or think they were uh, overreacting right. um, if they were the, afraid to get in a car. Right. And one of the most painful things for any trauma survivor is to have their trauma not validated. Yeah. Well, right? sure. And we see and, that in the Me Too movement and with rape victims. And, right. Right. Exactly. And I think the same thing is, you know, is for these couples. Yeah. So you mentioned um, the disclosure process and why is therapeutic disclosure necessary? I know in your book, you talk about botched disclosures and how re-traumatizing that can be. And we've all seen that clinically too. But I think it's useful to explain to people why telling the truth is essential to rebuilding these relationships. Yeah. So what ends up happening is you get a very dysfunctional couple dynamic after staggered disclosure. So staggered disclosure is where the information about the acting out comes out in drips and drabs over time. We, in, the, in the EFT community, we call it death by a million cuts. Right. So it's like, I had a client who used to call it trickle truthing. Trickle truthing, yeah. right? It's so painful. And then the, and the partner doesn't know what to believe. So the dynamic that is typical is for the partner to pursue for information and confront, and then the addict will deny, minimize, kind of evade. 
And that's a very uncomfortable couple dynamic. It creates a lot of stress within the coupleship. And it also is, you know, sometimes can put the partner in a, uh, you know, one-up position or parenting kind of role and, uh, or shaming the other party. And it just ends up, you know, nobody wants to be in a relationship like that. Neither party feels good about being in that dynamic. And so you have to interrupt that. And really, the only way to do that is to empower partners with the truth about what's been going on Mm -hmm. and to get all the information out there so that they don't have to keep on coming for with questions, right, and seeking information and trying to figure out. So just getting the facts on the table. And it's also really important that it be done with therapeutic assistance, because what ends up happening for many couples is that the addict will just... Um, you know, dump the information out there and they will share typically, um, you know, painful details, detail that's too, or information that's too detailed for the partner that can really increase their PTSD, cause them, um, you know, a lot more distress. So we try to craft a facilitated disclosure in which we can get the information out there to the partner, answer the partner's questions in a way that is as least traumatic to that partner as possible. And so when we're talking about an ethical and responsible disclosure, we're talking about a disclosure that's planned and well-structured and both parties are very supported and they have a safety plan. And so it's not just this, you know, dumping of information that leaves the partner traumatized. So, and then also it's, Afterwards, you have to have a repair plan in which the partner gets to respond with their feelings. So we're not just dumping the information on them. Um, So, you know, if you want to stay together as a couple and heal as a couple, it's important to do that process well. Because when it doesn't go well, it can create, you know, a whole host of other problems and actually prolong the healing and require a lot more therapy to get better from that. So it's, it is a really important process. So it sounds like what you're saying is that when people are struggling with betrayal trauma, whether it's a single incident affair or sexual addiction and compulsivity, that they should, you know, seek uh, therapeutic care with someone who understands the importance of going through this process in a formal and well-honed way um, so that it doesn't become you know, just a bigger mess because I really think therapists can make or break marriages at this juncture. Absolutely. And it's interesting because I did a little research study on disclosure. Um, I'm working on the write-up right now, (laughs) trying to get it published. Uh Um, But one of the things I did look at was did the therapist that did, you know, I tried to look at what made disclosure more effective Mm. um, or less effective. And I looked at all sorts of different variables in regards to that. But one of the things I looked at was, did the therapist have training yeah. in how to do this? And there was a huge difference oh, I'm um, sure. with therapists that had had training. And I think there's a lot of therapists out there that are very well-meaning and want to help people through this. But this is not something that you, you, know, you want to practice outside of your scope of competence in because just like you said, it destroys marriages. Yeah, so it's a very special training. I once had a couple where they said they'd already done this disclosure with someone who didn't have the training and that that therapist was saying, you know, you just need to move on. He's told you the whole truth. 
And the truth is he hadn't told the whole truth because they hadn't gone through the preparation work on his end. Um, and so, and then once I was working with a situation where uh, the woman's therapist had no idea about disclosure and, you know, they insisted on doing it. They did it in her office. And the therapist said to me, I've never been so traumatized in my life <laughs> because I was watching my, my client, you know, hear all this information and I didn't know how to help her. Yeah. Right. And so right. this is a special skill, just the same way treating geriatrics is a special skill right. or treating, you know, major mental illness like schizophrenia is a special skill. Uh, there's so many special skills in the field of psychotherapy that it's important for people that are listening to understand that, you know, if you want a formal therapeutic disclosure, you should find um, someone who's trained in doing that. And typically, we know that certified sex addiction therapists get that kind of training. Right, right. And people also that work specialize in working with partners, like uh, partner uh, right. trauma therapists, right? Certified partner trauma therapists, right? Yeah. So, okay, so then there's this disclosure process, and um, you talk about uh, emotional restitution. You mentioned that in the beginning also. And can you say why that's so important? Yes. And just, first of all, what it is and why it's so important. Right. So after the disclosure, the Typically, what I encourage is for the partner to do what's called an impact letter. So that's the first step in the, in the healing process, where the partner, basically what we want is for the partner to really express their pain to the addict or the unfaithful party, really go through and say, here are the pain points. This is what this has been like for me. You know, really invite them into their world of their whole experience. So like, for example, I, I, in uh, my most recent disclosure and impact letter the um it was a female partner in this case and she her impact letter was four hours long it, we oh spent four hours processing that you know yeah. it was, you know she had a lot of pain and it's not an anger letter that i don't want people to misunderstand that this is you know the partner is coming back and you know um you know assaulting right yeah, <laughs> or assaulting them this is like what has been the most painful aspect of this because it's important that the unfaithful person get that and really understand the person's pain um, so that they can have an opportunity to respond and say, I get it. Like I, now I get how much I've hurt you. I understand. They don't understand the depth of that pain. They'll, it's very hard for a partner to come back into the relationship and reinvest in the relationship when they don't see accountability and that the person understands their pain and really can hear them and is making a commitment to being different. And so the emotional restitution letter in both of these letters, they're, they're companion pieces. So they're eight part letters that the um, partner works on in the most common areas of pain for partners. And then the addict does a response that lines up with those areas. And basically it's a validation that of their experience. And right, and these are delineated in the workbook, right? These are in the workbook, right? Yeah. And the, um, in the emotional restitution includes amends. It includes an apology, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's, that's a very important piece that the partner hears that they're, they're, they're really sorry about this, that they, and that they plan you know, when we, when we make amends, it's not just about saying, I'm sorry, it's also about making things right and, yeah. you know, trying to change it and, and make it right. 
And so that's a, that's a big part of the healing process. And I feel like once you go through this process, it makes doing regular couples therapy much easier. Of course. Sure. Right. Cause you kind of got a little bit of, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I hesitate to use the word closure because, you know, these things tend to remain issues for couples yeah. for a while. This is a long-term treatment process, but it helps um, put some of it to bed so that yes. you can start processing other, you know, and, and start moving on in other areas of your relationship. I think healing. it cleans up these key resentments um, that are that become intractable over time. It's why a lot of people stop having sex even when there's no betrayal because they're not transparent. They're not honest with each other about their pains and their hurts and their losses over time. Right. So it seems essential to me um, to help those key, I guess we would call it wounds, you know, and hurts and resentment so that you're starting from ground zero in a different way. Right. Hi, this is Alex. If you like what you're listening to, I encourage you to check out my book, Mirror of Intimacy, available on Amazon, along with my other books. Also, be sure to visit www.centerforhealthysex.com to learn more about the services we offer and subscribe to our daily Mirror of Intimacy meditation emails. Well, I was going to say, so you've talked a lot about the offending party um, being able to have compassion for the party they've offended. Mm-hmm. And yet we know oftentimes that party has so much shame they can barely keep their own heads above water. Right. So a common question is how is the offending party supposed to um, come to the rescue of the betrayed partner uh, when they are struggling? Because what we'll see is the offending party getting defensive or... Um, just kind of wanting to run because they can't tolerate the amount of emotion coming towards them. Right, right. Well, it's, it's kind of counterintuitive, but I think actually taking ownership and, you know, being in your integrity helps reduce the shame. Mm-hmm. So by, you know, making those amends and, and make, you know, saying I'm sorry and making things right and doing things differently you know, being a better person in that relationship, it does reduce your shame. So, you know, that's, you know, who I was at that point in time. That's not who I am now. Yeah. And I also try to delineate in the book too, that um, your actions don't equal your worth as a person, you know, mm. that's an important distinction. Right. You know, like in a, in a, for example, in the case of an addiction, you know, people's behavior gets out of control in escalating addiction. That doesn't mean that they are a bad person and defective as a person. And I, you know, I think that's important for, for both parties to understand. Yeah, that's a hard one because culturally we're so quick to crucify and shame people and uh, make them out to be bad people. And uh, I was just hearing something on the radio, I think yesterday or the other day that, there are these treatment centers in the country for alcoholics and drug addicts that are really work camps. Um, and they're, you know, performing hard labor and it's incredibly shameful. It's like treating them like criminals the way we did in the you know, thirties and forties. Yeah. So yeah. to be able to have compassion for both sides is what I hear you saying. Right. And I am so happy to hear that because I think, you know, in some ways the pendulum swang from one extreme to the other 
Um, you know, first it was the partners were all kind of crazy and micromanaging and codependent. And then it was that the addicts were all offenders and they were bad people. Yes. And it's like, wait a minute, these are two human beings that are wounded. Right. Um, and to start placing blame as opposed to starting to empower them, which is what I read when I read um, Courageous Love. I thought it was an incredibly empowering book for people that just took the blame off of everyone and said, what are we going to do about this? Yeah. That's why I use the term participating partner yeah. in the book for the unfaithful party, because mm -hmm. there is, I think, uh, in some circles of movement to um, use the term like offender or perpetrator and um, that, you know, violent against, you know, violence against women and, mm -hmm. and things like that. And while I think uh, there are times when their behavior is abusive and, needs, sure. and you need to call them out on their behavior, actually labeling them that is counterproductive when you're trying to heal the coupleship and try and repair uh, uh, two people that love each other. I don't think right. labeling either person a negative or a pathologizing label is going to be helpful. I'm in agreeing. that circumstance. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you write about empathy as a support model. And, yes. Um, I love that language. So tell us more about that. If there's more you can say that you haven't already. Yeah. Yeah. So I really try and get the um, unfaithful party to stop thinking, um, get, you know, get out of their heads and try and get into the head of their partner to really uh. empathize with what's going on with their partner. So um, the partner, when the partner is triggered, um, you know, oftentimes what happens for um, like the addict, for example, they'll get into, they'll be, you know, how can I explain this? How, you know, you know, get defensive, they'll start to get flooded. And what I tell them is, you know, really, this is an opportunity for you as a couple. Every time you're, that the partner is triggered about something, it's a chance for you to come together and heal so in your response. So look at it as positive. And I tell them, if you can just I have this little support model in the right. book, and it's in a little anacronym. And mm -hmm. I tell them, if you can just do the first two steps right, you'll already be on the right trajectory. And the first two steps are the easiest. So you just stop and give them your undivided attention. Because usually what happens is they'll try and deflect and get out of there and, <laughs> you know, evade the circumstances. Sure. So you stop, give them your undivided attention and really understand what's going on for them. So it's very different when somebody responds and says, so why are you upset? And when did this happen? And what are you thinking about that? And what are you feeling about them? So I, I coach them to reflect actively listen mm. and ask questions about what's going on with them. So they're not thinking about their response. Right. They just need to hear what's yeah. going on with the other person. And then the, the rest is easy. Provide empathy and validation are the two P's. Mm -hmm. And then O is be open and honest if they have questions. The R is demonstrate remorse. And the T is touch if the partner's open because mm. a, you know, a cuddle can go a long way in a, to comfort a person in a situation like that. Obviously, if, the, you know, if it's appropriate and, and the partner is open for that. Yeah. So it's just a very easy little tool to get them to respond in a manner that's 
more empathetic instead of trying to, you know, uh, rewrite the story, make explanations of the past. And yeah. that's totally, the partners often just perceive that as gaslighting and, and minimizing mm-hmm. anything that they say. So it's a, it's a no win situation for them to go into an explanation. Yeah. But it's an opportunity mm-hmm. for them to connect if they can be empathetic. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I love that. I mean, I think that uh, listening is a superpower. And I also think listening is really an act of love when we do it well. Yeah, yeah, um, that's a great point. So um, I thought that acronym was great and super useful for people, like something they can actually do. Yeah. Um, so what are some of the commitments to rebuilding trust? Yeah, I have at the end, there's a 10 commitments I have them do. Um, you know, there's a commitment to uh, couple, doing couples therapy, a commitment to, um, you know, actually uh, doing nice things for each other, spending time together. So towards the end, I really try to do some intimacy building activities mm. um, to try and get their friendship back on board. So the friendship is important, just as important as every other aspect of the relationship. And you can really build on the strengths of the couple. And so I ask couples to not, you know, if they're really trying to save their relationship, you know, don't throw divorce on the table, you know, don't threaten to leave. You make a commitment, you Mm -hmm. make a commitment to try and you just, you, um, you just don't put that out there and you really work on trying to build on the things that were fun. So what did you guys, what do you guys enjoy doing? You know, what, you know, what, and I actually have them write it out and make a plan and implement it. And so that it's very important for them to start rebuilding those, um, you know, the, the intimacy in their relationship. Yeah, so that requires a commitment in and of itself to not threaten the foundation of the relationship or the security of the relationship um, and to really um, kind of keep your, you know, higher functions on board, so to speak, um, so that you're not coming from a place of hurt and pain and sorrow and um, all of that, which can have us saying things that we regret that we really can't take back. Right, right. As uh, John Gottman says, you know, one, in his research, he shows that one negative zinger towards your partner erases five positives. You have to have this ratio of five positives for every one negative to have a healthy relationship. Yeah, that means that most everybody <laughs> should keep a running tally, right? <laughs> if you're in a long-term relationship, you should have one of those little flip books. Yeah. Um, or you should put it in your phone yeah. um, to sort of count what you've got in the bank before it's so make you think about what you're saying before you say it. Yeah. We really do need to have the, a lot of positive interactions to keep us feeling good about yeah. our, the other party. So well, like you said, uh, the Gottman, Stan Tatkin, certainly Sue Johnson, all of these sort of people that are experts in the field at the front of the field I'll talk about how crucial it is for us to pay attention to the ways in which we talk to each other and how that erodes the relationship faster than anything. Absolutely. Absolutely. Contemptuous, you know, unkind um, and hurting each other. Um, So you also talk about sexual healing uh, towards the end of the book. 
And I want to know more about how you're thinking about that, um, because there is uh, more more work in that, um, more sort of graphs or charts um, about how to work through those things. Yeah, so basically um, what I try to do is make a couple sexual health plan. And um, oftentimes after uh, addiction or porn addiction or infidelity, there is... Uh, on the for the un, unfaithful party, you have certain behaviors that they are not going to engage in, um, mm-hmm. an abstinence list, so to speak. Um, and um, for the partner, typically, it's very common for the partner to have sore spots around sexuality, things that are uh, maybe uncomfortable or painful as a result of the betrayal. So like, for example, um, I had a couple where Um, he was acting out with prostitutes and he was getting um, a lot of oral sex from prostitutes. And she found Mm -hmm. that out and they used to enjoy that. But then ever since she found out about that, she just couldn't perform that task with him. And it was, you know, a very, you know, painful thing for her. Um, I have another partner who, um, after his affair, there were certain um, motions he started to do. He would rub his hands in certain ways, and she knew it was a new behavior mm. and not something that he had ever done with her. And she knew that he had done that with his acting out partner. Right. So sometimes there's like very, um, you know, there's painful aspects for both parties. So um, I look at the couple sexual health plan as something that is fluid and can be updated and changed mm-hmm. as a, as a couple heals over time. And right. oftentimes with in, in addiction, we make modifications to an addict's sexual health plan over time. Um, so uh, similar to the three circles, you know, we have a heart diagram that's, that's a little mm-hmm. bit different, but there's in the middle an abstinence list of things that right now that are either um, on the addict's recovery uh, plan or the partner is not comfortable with given yeah. the, the circumstances. And then there's a boundary list, um, which is the behaviors that they're not going to do together um, that don't support their recoveries. And then the outside is their healthy sexuality. I also have sensuality and nurturing on there. Mm. Like what ways can they um, nurture each other in a non-sexual way, like back rubs and foot rubs and, you know, just uh, maybe skin time together at night, Mm -hmm. just laying naked together and things like that, that can be nurturing and sensual, um, but maybe not sexual. And I think it's important for people Uh, in this situation to kind of think about what their positive sexuality could look like, because a lot of times people are afraid that they're not going to have fun, hot sex again. Right. Right. And we want to have them have a vision that their relationship can be exciting and where they're going to go together and what they want to do together. And, you know, but also being mindful of the pain points that are still there. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. yeah, because people so often think of sex as penetrative intercourse or right. penetrative sex, whether it's, you know, straight or gay or what have you. And there are a million ways to have, give and receive pleasure uh, that ha- don't have anything to do with that. Right. And we get so hung up on that particular thing in our culture that this is really, you know, you're really supporting 
um, emotional intimacy, which I think is your first point in this plan. Yes. Um, and how important the friendship is, the shared values, because my experience is that people that stay together are really people that share their a value system, even more than love, you know, because you can love someone and not like them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yes. really, you know, have a value system where you want to grow old with this person. You want to have a life with them is essential. Yes. So these are key components, I think. Because I always say people know how to have sex. If you're an adult, you know how to put your bodies together. Doesn't really, it's not rocket science. Right. <laughs> Other, you know, intermittent pieces that you're talking about, this sort of raw vulnerability, um, facing one's shame to be able to say, I'm sorry, um, to be able to move into forgiveness. Um, these are really deep emotions between people that that most people don't even get the, um, I could say, privilege of having the experience of unless there's some sort of problem, like a betrayal. Yeah. That's the good news and bad news. I know. I always tell my couples that you can be stronger after something like this. And I tell like my addicts in early recovery, you know, recovering addicts can make great partners. Mm -hmm. You're learning all these wonderful tools that make you a better person to be in relationship with. In your group, you're learning how to be vulnerable. You're, you know, and, you know, I think that it's important for couples to keep that positive outlook that if you go through something difficult like this, ultimately, if you fight and you work through it, and yes, it's hard, and yes, there's going to be painful moments, but you can get become stronger together as a couple and have more vulnerability, have more intimacy uh, on a whole new level that you maybe never thought possible with your partner. Exactly. And, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, they say. (laughs) (laughs) So what are the ways that people can envision a new relationship? Yeah. So I asked them at the end to think about that, think about what they would like in their relationship going forward, because it is important for um, couples to have a dream, a shared dream, mm-hmm. that a way that they can see themselves being together and what that would look like. Uh, actually, that's another thing that John Gottman talks a lot about yeah. in his research is um, couples that have a shared vision. And so kind of mapping out what their hopes are and how their relationship might be different going forward to have that vision it can be really helpful and important. And I try to get them to also, if possible, um, demarcate that relation. And this is way down the line. Yeah. This is for couples that have done all this work <laughs> and, you know, have done a lot of healing, um, but that they can kind of, um, you know, do something symbolically, like take a trip together mm-hmm. and, or, you know, have a new recommitment ceremony or, you know, like I have a couple right now who um, the addict and his addiction uh, spent all the money on that they, she had been saving up. She was mainly the breadwinner in the family uh, for a travel trailer, for an RV for them, for retirement. Uh-huh. And um, so in his recovery, he spent all that money, spent all, their, wow. all her money wow. without her knowing. Yeah. And so in their recovery together, they just went out and bought a new travel trailer together. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So it was really sweet. So it's kind of like a way to, you know, at some point you hope that the couple can kind of put some of this pain behind them and Mm -hmm. embrace the future together in a new way. Yeah. 
I mean, life is filled with so much pain. Nobody gets out of this alive or nobody escapes <laughs> their pain in this lifetime. And it seems like when we can take that pain and make it about our personal growth and development, um, then we can have sort of, I don't know if it's a happily ever after story, but moments of happily ever after story, Absolutely. right? Moments of wholeness, moments of celebration. Yeah, um, there's actually some research on that for partners on post-traumatic oh, growth that really yeah. shows that partners can really grow out of this pain that they've experienced. Yeah. yeah, and I've heard that, and I'm sure you have too, from many couples that this was the worst and best thing that ever happened to them. So um, is there anything else you want to tell us about courageous love? No, that, that's pretty, we, we covered pretty much, you know, right, a good, good overview of the book, so... Good. Well, I really appreciate the spirit with which you wrote this book, and I think it's going to help lots and lots of people, whether they've had um, an affair um, or multiple sexual indiscretions in their relationships or identify as sex addicts. So thank you, Stephanie, for taking time to talk to me today. Yeah, you bet. Okay. If you like this episode, be sure to like it, subscribe, and leave a rating or a comment. You can find our other episodes on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and alexkatahakis.com. Follow me at alexkatahakis on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you for listening to the Alex Katahakis Podcast. Remember that loving deeply begins with loving yourself. Mm-hmm.